So before we get started with the final episode of Series 2 of Let's Shape the Future, I just want to say a massive thank you for your support over the last couple of months of the podcast. Series 1 and Series 2 have been amazing. Um, the guests, the response from the listeners and everyone involved, it's just been great. So thank you so much for all of your support. We've got a great guest for you to finish off Series 2. And without further ado, all I will say is Hakuna Matata. Hello and welcome to the final episode of Series 2 of Let's Shape the Future and, and what an episode we've got for you today. Um, today's topic is how to turn speeches into engaging experiences and I'm joined by John Watkiss. Um, John is a high stakes performance coach, author and award winning performer. He's the author of Speaking Notes, The Eight Essential Elements to Make Your Speech Music to Their Ears and is the first Canadian-born actor to play Mufasa in the Disney musical The Lion King. Uh, thank you, John, for taking the time to speak with me today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So with all of my guests, I, I love to hear about how their career started and then progressed over time. So take me back to the very beginning. Did your journey to becoming a public speaking trainer start with acting? Is that where it all started? It didn't start with acting. Oddly enough, I've been speaking on and off most of my life. So whether that was debate club in high school or even Sunday school in church, but it really picked up for me when I was a call center supervisor for a company named Columbia House. And for people who aren't familiar with that company, we used to send CDs and VHS tapes in the mail. So this is when we, we didn't have MP3s yet. So we're going back a while. And in June 23rd, 1994, I was sent to a seminar. And the seminar was how to deliver exceptional customer service. The presenter that day, his name was Darcel Carrington. And as I sat in the seat listening to him and, and watching as he was almost moving the entire audience at his will, that's when I thought, hey, that is what I want to do. So June 23rd, 1994 is when it became real for me in terms of wanting to have it as a career. I did have, and I didn't realize that it would serve me in speaking, I did have a background in theater arts because I was a theater arts major in high school. If you can imagine this, I actually failed theater arts in my second year. So they kicked me out of the art school. <laughs> and then I went to another school that had television production. And it was one of only two schools in all of Canada that had a full television studio. So I learned television production when I was a teenager and I didn't realize it at the time but that would eventually contribute to how I did my speaking. So as we get into the future of speaking, we can come back to that. So, so two years after I realized that I wanted to start speaking in 1996, the companies whose seminar I attended, Fred Fryer Seminar, and they are still the largest seminar company in the world. They came to Toronto looking for speakers, holding auditions. I did an audition with them, they liked me brought me to Kansas City, where the head office was, did a, a weekend certification course, and from there, traveled the world. So a lot of the United States, but then over to England and Australia and Wales and the island of Cyprus, teaching a number of different topics. So how to supervise people, to exceptional customer service, to speed reading, you name it. And so I had a broad experience with topics and also with different cultures and people. 
And I settled on, at least I, I loved more than anything else, the topic of presentation skills. Mm. Now, when I was on the road, I would go to karaoke bars. It, <laughs> one of those things that made me happy, go to a karaoke bar because I was on the road at least three weeks out of the, the month. And it was back to back to back. You do a seminar in a big city one day from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., get in your car and drive to the next city and do it all over again. So you would do that for the week. In between, to give myself a rest, I did karaoke. Well, one day when I was coming back from, I'm not sure which city, but I was on a plane, I saw an ad in the newspaper which said singers wanted for the Lion King. And seeing as I had been warming up with my karaoke the whole time, <laughs> I thought this will be easy. They wanted 16 bars of a song. So I went in, I auditioned, and lo and behold, I got into The Lion King. Blew me away. So as I said, I was the first Canadian-born actor to, to play Mufasa. And after a year, decided I wanted to go back to speaking. So there was a bit of a transition from speaking into speech writing, in which I started writing speeches for politicians, for athletes, for executives, for philanthropists. So I got out of being on the stage and actually going behind and crafting the words for other people. I switched from speech writing to owning my own fitness studio, which again came out of nowhere. <laughs> but I saw an open sign. I had been dabbling in fitness. I enjoyed dancing, was a competitive salsa dancer as well, and just figured I would start a studio. And in doing that, it turned into me going into conferences, fitness conferences, teaching personal trainers and fitness instructors how to deliver presentations. So I came full circle and thought, you know what, it's time to close my studio and go back into the public speaking realm. So it's really been a roundabout road that's gotten me back into the public speaking realm. But what's wonderful about it is that in every industry, both from the speech writing to the fitness, I've learned something that directly correlates to the overall speaking industry. So you've had some, obviously, some amazing experiences there, but the, the point I'm taking is that all of them have contributed to the same sort of end results. So you've been able to take um, insights from all of them to then make you better in, in what you do now. So um, the, the main question I have there is, so you, you mentioned karaoke. What was your go-to karaoke song? Well, back then, it was, it was between I Just Called to Say I Love You, which was a song nice. I auditioned with, by the way. <laughs> uh, actually, when I got to the audition, they said, do you have your sheet music? On the ad, it said they wanted a cappella. So it took three hours before I was going to be ready to audition. I went to the store and bought the music and brought it back. <laughs> so it was I Just Called to Say I Love You. But every now and then, David Lee Roth, Just a Gigolo. It's nice. a it's a crowd surprise. <laughs> I was expecting it to be the circle of life, but uh, no, I'll take that. <laughs> rarely, rarely. <laughs> um, so then, what what you do now? How did you sort of learn your craft? Did you use other people's speeches as inspiration, or was it a case of learning by doing and having a sort of iterative approach that way? A lot of it was learning by doing. And when I started writing speeches for other people, I studied the craft of rhetoric. And when we hear the word rhetoric, a lot of times we think of it as being a negative, but rhetoric is the art of persuasion using the spoken or written word. And it's an old study. 
So you have Aristotle who has written the, the art of rhetoric. So I studied rhetoric and a lot of it we don't realize are patterns that we use already. Things like do or die or now or never are rhetorical devices. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. That's antithesis, another rhetorical device. And so I would study political speeches and I realized that most speeches still have a very similar format. Mm. Now, now what drove it home for me was when one of my clients said, hey, do you play a musical instrument? And I said, why? And she said, when you wrote this speech for me, you know, I, I recognized that it had highs and lows and, and pauses and timing. And I thought, I bet you John played the musical instrument. And I thought, that's an interesting concept. But I didn't study how I did what I did. You know, I just, I wrote the speeches. And so I thought, let me do some research here to see if there's anything about music and successful speeches. And when I did the research, there was nothing. So I thought, okay, let me look at music, how you compose a song. And now let me look at some of the successful speeches throughout history. And I thought, bingo, there are some similarities between speeches and music composition. So that's how I, I determined this pattern. And now I've broken it down and, and analyzed it and made it so that I can teach other people how to take the components, even if they're not musical, because it's really not about being able to play notes or even speak notes. It's more about just understanding organization. So chorus, verses, those pre-choruses, a little pause in between the verse and the chorus. So small little elements of music that can be used and transitioned into a speech so that audiences remember, repeat, and respond to it. But all of it came about really with that one question, which is, do you play an instrument? <laughs> so you, you mentioned there about constructing a speech like a song. My, my sort of next question was going to be, where do you start when it comes to giving advice on presentations, speeches, keynotes, etc.? Is it always the case of dissecting it and arranging it like a song or what would you say is the are they sort of the essential elements of of a successful speech the first key is that you have to understand who you're speaking to and what you want to accomplish because i can have a topic on public speaking and if i'm speaking to people who are uncomfortable with public speaking I'll be presenting to them differently than I would if I was speaking to a group who were professional speakers. I'll be giving them different concepts, even though it's the same topic. So I have to understand first, who is my audience? And when I figured out who my audience is, then I can say, well, based on who my audience is, what do I want to accomplish by the end of this speech? Um, it's, it's quite an interesting, and, and it was going to be one of my questions in terms of, do you have to tailor your approach to different audiences um, so that obviously you can make the speech resonate for all of them? And obviously you've answered that there. You spoke, as you say, about the, the song and, and the chorus and the verse and stuff like that. Everything is about delivering presentations people will remember with those concepts. How does that sort of verse and chorus and, and sort of structure work in a speech? And could you break down a little bit what it means by a verse in a speech versus the chorus in a speech and stuff like that? Absolutely. So if we were to look at a song, and I'll try and take a song that most people will know. Think of a universal song. Okay, Billie Jean, Michael Jackson, 
you know, the chorus, Billie Jean is not my lover. That part of the song is the main part of the song. And not only is it the main part, he repeats it over and over. And so within your speech, there's a main message that you're trying to get across. Mm. And that main message, even if you're not using the same words or phrases, is still repeated all the way through. So to take a, a speech that we're all familiar with, the I have a dream speech, Martin Luther King, within 17 minutes, says the words free, freedom, or liberty over 30 times. Because that's what the I have a dream speech was about. When he starts the speech, it begins by saying, I'm happy to join with you today for what will go down as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. And then if you think about how he ended that speech, it was free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. So freedom, liberty, those were the words that he repeated throughout the entire 17 minutes. That was his chorus. So as you're thinking about your presentation, as you think about any song, that part that gets repeated over and over and is central to the entire song, is central to the entire speech, that's your chorus. So if you were to walk away and go, why did I just spend 20 minutes listening to that person? <laughs> they had no chorus. So they were, they were giving you a lot of information, but there was no purpose behind it. Your chorus is the reason you speak. Is that when you, because there's a lot of sort of speeches and, and sort of phone calls and stuff that I'll listen to and, and webinars, et cetera. And you come away from it and you're like, what did I actually learn from that? Like, what can I remember from what I've just listened to? So is that where the sort of concept comes from in terms of the chorus is when someone walks away from your speech, that's what sticks with them. When someone says, oh, how was, how was the, the speech that John did? You go, like, well, I knew, like, this is what I remember and what they remember will be the chorus of that speech. Yeah. So when someone says, what did he talk about? Well, he talked about speech being like music. Bingo. That's it. You should be able to say that immediately. And so that is where a lot of speakers miss or just presenters. They go to a meeting and it's funny because I've had a lot of clients when I say to them, why are you giving this presentation at the end? What do you want people to do? And they go, I never thought about that. So every presentation must be for a purpose, not just to transfer information. What's the reason behind it? So that's where you get that chorus. The verse is, if you think about a song, verses tell a little bit more about the chorus. So if I go back to Billie Jean, you know, we've heard him make this claim over and over, she's not my lover. And then what does he do in the verse? For 40 days and for 40 nights, the law was on her side, but who could stand when she's in demand? He's pleading his case now. So the verse clarifies what the chorus is all about. In speech, that could be a statistic. It could be a story. It could be a metaphor, an analogy. Any piece of information that explains why you're talking about the chorus, why you believe the chorus is true, that is what is considered a verse. So a lot of people will talk about storytelling, why storytelling drives a point home. For people who are analytical, a statistic drives a point home. So all of those would be considered verses 
because they are now supporting what the chorus is saying. So is it a case of you go through, so the starting point is to understand your audience, really understand who you're speaking to and what they want to get out of it. Then you can use that to form the core components of your chorus. And then you can use the verse to reinforce all of that together. Is that a sort of process that you'd go through when creating a, a great speech? Absolutely. You've got it right. You, you're following it perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, in addition, you'll notice that in, core, in, in songs, you might have about two or three verses. It's the same with a speech. You want to have maximum three main points. Another big mistake we make in presentations is thinking if we give more information, people will walk away with something. The truth is, the more information we give, the less people remember. And it's, the difference is, you know, when you're reading a book, if I forget what you said in the book, I just flip back a few pages. Mm -hmm. If you're speaking and I forget what you said and I try and remember it, not only am I lost thinking about what you said, I'm now missing what you're saying because I can't be thinking and listening to you at the same time. So rather than trying to give as much information as we can, each verse should be diving deeper so that you get more examples of one main point so that you walk away remembering it instead of trying to come up with 16 points and hoping I hold on to one. No, it's, it's a good point. As you say, you find that when it's a call as well, you, if you're not understanding it, you then, as you say, you're trying to think, oh, they've moved on to something else, but, but what have I missed here? And then you're sort of, you're caught in a circle because then you miss what they say. And then it's just an, an endless cycle. So you, you never catch up and you'll have to watch the recording, et cetera, et cetera. So no, it, 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 <laughs> make, it makes, um, it makes complete sense. And, and to that point, you're not always going to be presenting content, which is like really riveting and really engaging. So in certain environments, how can you make any topic exciting and ensure the audience is engaged and understanding what you're talking about? Excellent question, because you're absolutely right. Not all topics are engaging and then not all presenters are engaging. <laughs> so how do you find a way to keep the audience listening? One of the tactics I, I'll call it that I like to do is just ask a question. Because when you ask questions, you keep people engaged. Another common mistake that speakers make is trying to tell you everything. When quite frankly, if they can get you to recall information or get you as an audience member to share what you know, the audience is automatically engaged. So rather than just telling you something, I can say true or false. And now when I've said true or false, I've got the audience in a, okay, I say true, I say it's false. All right, great. Let's find out what the answer is. And that will automatically bring people into the equation. I could do multiple choice. So how, how many of this percentage would you say, is it volume number one, volume number two, volume number three? If it's a law, certain law allows you to do A, B, or C. Which one is the correct answer? And now once you've got people saying, oh, it could be either one of those, it's just drawing on that inquisitive nature of people. Ask them questions, get them involved. And now once they've answered, then you can move to the answers and explain why answer A, B, or C was true. 
if I were to say the number one element is to ask a question that engages, true or false, multiple choice. Another way of looking at it is we have a show, and I don't know if it's watching the UK Jeopardy. Is that Jeopardy a popular show over there? I've heard of Jeopardy. I'm not sure if it's massively popular, but I've definitely heard of it. Yeah. Okay. So the theory of Jeopardy is that you would actually give an answer and then the participant has to come up with what's the question. Mm, okay. So if I said, this is the fifth largest city in North America, then the question would be, what is Toronto, Canada? And so you get people drawn in because they're now guessing. The more you can get people guessing and you can get them involved in the material, even if it's boring, is the more intrigued that they're going to be. So keep them guessing about how much they really know about the topic that you're speaking about. Obviously, that sort of links to my next point, which is looking at the current world we live in everything that we or most of the stuff we're presenting is going to be virtual so if you're doing a, a speech on a stage to a massive audience you can gauge response you can sort of um people put their hands up in terms of true put your hands up false put your hands up what are your top tips for transitioning that sort of stuff to virtual presentations what are your your sort of tips for engaging audiences and delivering great presentations virtually let me say this first about presenting in person versus presenting virtually. When we present on a stage, as you said, we can connect with the audience and we can feel them. The only thing that we're focusing on when we speak is speaking. When we get in front of a camera and we're virtual, depending on how many different gadgets you have, you're now forced to look at the chat box. You're forced to make sure that the microphone is working correctly. Or if you have a PowerPoint slide, you can go into the PowerPoint slide and, okay, one second, can everyone see my PowerPoint slide? Yes, <laughs> yes, okay. I'm going to share my screen. So there are so many different elements happening when you're presenting virtually. So the first suggestion I would have is, if at all possible, get someone to take the technical aspects off of your hands. Because when you're on stage, you have a sound person, you have a light person, you actually have all of those people producing virtually. Now you're trying to do it all by yourself. And I don't care how adept you are. It's going to be a challenge when you're trying to connect with people and run the program at the same time. So if possible, try and get someone else who can help you as a producer behind the scenes. With that being said, there are some great tools that you can use. As we're, we're talking on Zoom now, you can do a poll. But you can be more advanced than that because one of the common behaviors that we see people use is checking their phone when they're on. So why not use that to your advantage? There is a company or there's a software called Menti, M-E-N-T-I. And with Menti, you can do online polling. So if you wanted to get a ward cloud, or even if you wanted to play a game online, you could say, hey, get your cell phones out. Everybody's thinking, what? Get my cell phones out? Yes, get your cell phones out. Let's answer these questions on your phone. And then on the screen, you can actually see all the information populating. So once again, you have people who are literally engaged in what's happening. And that's why we love video games. But with video games, no one has trouble paying attention. Why? because they're engaged in what's happening. They're creating the outcome. So this is where we can move from just presenting information 
to using tools so that we can engage people. Obviously, when you do presentations virtually uh, at the moment obviously sometimes not everyone wants to or is able to have their camera on so how can a presenter or speaker ensure that an audience is engaged without being able to see their responses like as you say normally you'll be able to read facial expressions but obviously i know you can as you, you mentioned you can use engagement tools like polls and stuff like that but is there any other ways that you can sort of gauge the engagement of the audience when you can't see their face. The chat section is another good way. If you can at all use the chat, and that's been one of my favorite items. So do me a favor, put in the chat and give them an option. Out of these three elements, what would you say is the most important? Uh, give me a good tip that you've heard so far. What are you gonna do at the end of today's session? All of these are questions that I have people put in the chat so that we're continuing to get some energy as we go along. There's also the other side of it, which is sometimes you just have to pretend there's energy. And this is where I said earlier on in my theater arts background and in my television production background, how it prepared me for today. Speakers, I'm talking the best keynote speakers in the world are great in front of an audience because they're able to feed off the energy. And when you put a cold camera lens in front of them, it doesn't feel the same. They don't speak the same. They don't have the same energy. And that's natural because it's a completely different element. What a lot of actors will do is they will have someone stand behind a camera person. So if you have a big crew, they actually have the actor they're speaking to stand behind the camera person just so they can feel like they're talking to someone. For voiceover artists with a microphone, they put a picture of someone on the <laughs> microphone so that they are talking to someone. And this is where you are manufacturing the energy and the engagement for yourself. A comedian once said that you just have to have confidence that what you're saying is funny, what you're saying is engaging, and that the people on the other end are feeling it. Because in some cases, you're just not gonna get it back. And so you, you're creating it on your own end. That takes a lot of work and confidence and energy. Yeah, I, I suppose if you do everything properly in terms of knowing your audience, what they want to get out of it, construct your speech properly, um, having that chorus, having the verses supporting it, you're putting yourself in the best position to generate that energy and really resonate with the audience. So you may not be able to feel it that much, but you know that you've at least prepared enough that you've got all the right ingredients to ensure that the audience is, is as engaged as possible. Um, so obviously, as we sort of transition out of lockdowns and stuff like that, we're moving to a world where there's potentially going to be a mixture of in-person and virtual people at the same speech. How do you think we can adapt our approach to ensure that everyone is receiving the best experience from that sort of engagement. What's most interesting about this to me is before lockdown, before we even knew lockdown was coming, I was doing hybrid presentations. And some people would just be there through the phones and other people would be doing it through the camera, different companies. But I would have people in front of me and then I would have people who were dialing in from another place. And what was always important was that in my preparation, any exercises that I did, there was the in-person exercise instructions. And then for those of you dialing in, here's what you want to do. 
but I'd always keep in mind if I have to adapt an exercise. All right, for those of you in the room, for those of you on your own, here's what I want you to do. And that way, they always felt as if there was a conversation to both. You know, the very first one that I did on a camera, I remember feeling excited because I said, to those of you in the room and the millions are watching around the world. <laughs> and it was funny because I looked right to the camera and everyone felt so engaged. And I had over 200 people online who were engaged in that presentation. So it really is talking to that camera and then talking to the people and switching back between the two. If you can think of it as not only necessarily a bunch of people in front of one camera, but remember there's some differences. So even though I have 50 people in one room, I may have 10 people gathered in front of a camera. I may have one. So I have to be aware that on the other, other side of the lens, there are also different formations and try and prepare for each one. So if you're on your own, do this. If you're together, do this. That way you're always remembering that the what is right in front of you isn't the only formation and gathering that's happening. Mm. So it's all about ensuring that no one's left out in sort of exercises that you're delivering. Because if if people feel like their sort of value, their input is valued, whatever their sort of scenario at that point is, they're more likely to to be engaged and to contribute to the conversation. Um, so so link to that. We spoke a little bit about sort of knowing your audience. How do you go about sort of researching your audience? And then do you have any sort of tips for depending on sort of senior seniority or age or, or sort of uh, technical ability? What sort of tips do you have for, for sort of the best ways you found to tailor your approaches to those sorts of different audiences? You ask an amazing question <laughs> because I'll tell you what, now, especially right now, I'm, I'm 51. Some of the experiences I have, for example, sending CDs in the mail, mm. there are generations who go, you did what? <laughs> they can't even comprehend that, that level. VH, VHS tapes. So I have to remind myself that there are television shows that I watched that now if I make reference to them mean absolutely nothing. So in my time, Charlie Brown, there was a teacher in Charlie Brown who went wah, 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 wah. And when I was growing up, you could say that and absolutely everybody understood. And now it's not the same. So age-wise, you almost have to give two examples. So someone told me that her name was Josie. I said, Josie and the Pussycats? She said, see, I can tell what generation you're from because other people would say outlaw Josie Wales. And it's just a matter of those are cultural age references, mm -hmm. which means that any joke you tell, you probably have to have a second joke. Any example you have, you may have to say for those of you in this range and those of you in this range, because we've never had so many people in such a wide range in one room at a time. And so that would be the biggest one where it comes to age. Make sure that you are using time appropriate references because each one of those will, will hit or land with your audience differently uh, when it comes to abilities this is where you want to ask as many questions of the organizer so who's in charge of creating or getting this audience together you can do a poll and this is i do very often with my audiences how much experience have you had 
with this? How often have you had to present? What type of audiences do you present in front of? What's your biggest challenge? What would you like to learn from today's session? The more people I can get to answer a question like that, the better prepared that I'm going to be. So it's always a matter of ask, ask, ask the people who are organizing and then get a few samples from the people who'll be in your audience. Mm. I think the, to your point earlier, you mentioned about sort of age. I think there's also like a geography reference thing that you need to take into account as well, given if your audience is global, because it's funny, I was having a conversation with, with a lady in, in the States recently, and she was talking about um, using Bob Ross as a, as a reference, which is a famous artist. And she was like, oh, a lot of people in the US know him. And I was like, but I, a lot of Europeans, we don't, we don't know that reference. So it was quite interesting to, and, and she was sort of presented to a global audience and she thought she, she, she kept it, but she, at least then she knew that not everyone may get that reference. Um, but as you, as you say, it's important that you've got age, you've got technical ability, you've got geography. There's a lot of things you need to take into account when putting these sorts of references in, because otherwise they may fall flat. Um, to, talking of sort of falling flat and, and mistakes, what are some of the, the most common mistakes people make when delivering speeches or presentations? Like what should they categorically avoid doing? We've touched on a couple of them. One is too much information right off the bat because people will forget automatically. You just brought up another great one is understanding the cultural differences within your audience. Mm -hmm. I remember the first time I did a presentation skills workshop in London and Someone wrote, because I, I talked about television shows and the 30 second commercials between, between the, the shows and how they have them every seven minutes. And someone just wrote down on my evaluation form, the next time you go to a different country, it's important that you learn, <laughs> the, learn what it's like because we don't have commercials every seven minutes between our, so it was, a, it was it's, it seems scathing if you're not open to feedback, but they let me know, be very aware of who you're talking to, because it's very different. In the U I was using a U.S. statistic and U.S. information and didn't adapt it for the, the London group. In fact, even the, the type of phrases and that I would use where they're widely accepted in New York are frowned upon in London. <laughs> and now we're, we're more global. You know, I. It's been amazing to me where I've received messages on LinkedIn. Someone from N Namibia in, in Africa says, yes, I watched on, I watched your conference. And I think, wow, I didn't know who was in the room. So they're the language that we use. Now, here's what's funny about it. Even though I'm talking cultures right now, many of us use acronyms or jargon or abbreviations for our industry that we think everybody else gets. And they don't. So what, what jargon are you using that's unique to your department or to your industry that if you speak to someone outside of the industry, they're not exactly sure what that term means. That's another big one. So culturally, but also within your organization is using words and phrases that people don't get. Here's the biggest mistake I think people make is thinking that you can logically persuade someone else to a different point of view. And when I say that, I mean, when people are entrenched in their beliefs, we try to argue harder, be more persuasive, rather than 
acknowledging the other person's point of view and saying that is an excellent point of view. And I can see why you would come to that conclusion. Because if I can approach you and say, I can see why you would come to that conclusion. What I've done is I've lowered your guard. Whereas if I say your conclusion doesn't make any sense, what are you going to try and do? You, you want to prove it even harder. So you defend it more. Mm. I take down your defenses by saying I can understand it. And not just as a tactic, but really because I've understood your perspective because I want to get a full understanding of why you see things the way you see them. And that way we can engage not in a, an argument, but in a conversation around ideas. And if you've noticed that I'm open to hearing what you have to say, then you as an audience are former likely to say, okay, let's hear his point of view now. So our biggest mistake is really coming at people, guns are blazing, you're wrong, you're wrong. <laughs> as opposed to, I can see why you would see it that way. And, and that acknowledgement makes a huge difference. Yeah, I think it's a great point because you, you you sort of touched on it earlier about making sure that every member of the audience feel, feels valued. And a, a quick way to disregard a lot of the audience is to disagree with a point of view. Whereas if you can automatically acknowledge that, it sort of, it keeps as much of your audience engaged as possible um, and sort of opens you up to a successful speech rather than sort of people automatically switching off because they think, oh, he's got a closed mind on this topic. There's no point me listening to him anymore. Um, so when I was looking through like your LinkedIn and other, and other stuff, you, you sort of talk about making mistakes while including numbers and statistics in presentations. What are some of those common mistakes and, and what can people do to rectify them? I think you alluded a little bit earlier in terms of um, using statistics that are based in say like for example the us but doing a speech in the uk is that the sort of thing you were you were talking about that's a big one is just using statistics that aren't relevant for that particular audience another one is using huge numbers that the audience can't relate to when you think about the way governments talk about their spending the budgets are huge that an individual person, unless you're in the top 1% of earners in the world, can't even fathom what that amount of money would look like. And so rather than giving us these large numbers, or at least in addition to giving us the large numbers, tell us what those numbers mean. How many families will be affected by this type of budget? How many more students will be able to eat if they receive this funding through their schools? So it's about the application of the number. I had this happen to me. I was giving a presentation to my son's kindergarten class. And of course, you can imagine this, these are five, six-year-olds ready to roll around on the carpet, <laughs> hardest audience you're ever going to speak to. And I was talking about the Lion King. And I told, I told them about the giraffes. And I said, kids, the giraffe were about 20 feet tall. So I'm thinking that's probably three meters. <laughs> I said, the, the, the giraffes were about 20 feet tall. And the kids went, wow. And the teacher said, hold on, hold on. Kids, do you know how tall 20 feet is? <laughs> and the kids went, no. She said, okay, look at the ceiling. That's about 20 feet. She said, oh. See, they had no context whatsoever for 20 feet, for a child, three meters, what's that? They don't know. But if I can relate it to 
something they can specifically see, now it makes sense. So when you use numbers and statistics, don't make it sound like the 99 bottles of beer on the wall song. <laughs> really make sure that there is a context for the number so people can understand what the number means. Never leave the number to itself. And and to that point, you also, there's a lot of people that say about with presentations, less is more in terms of what you put on a slide. Do you agree with that? Or do you, are you like, and there's a, there's a lot of people that just have a picture. They don't even have words. What's your sort of tactical combination of words and pictures when it comes to delivering presentations? It is so important. I'm glad you brought this up. There is a rule. They call it the six by six rule. If you're going to use text on a slide, the six by six rule is no more than six lines of text and no more than six words per line. Mm -hmm. I don't even like to use that much text. If I were to give you a, a word and just put one word on a slide and the word were balloon, you can get some pictures in your head of what a balloon looks like, but the word itself, it doesn't really give you the context. Now, I could show you a hot air balloon. I could show you a balloon for your birthday and give you a vivid picture that you remember. So we think in pictures. In fact, even when I said the word balloon, your mind still went to a picture. Mm. So it's more powerful if you can create what I call word pictures in the mind of your audience than putting words on a slide. Because when there are words, we are distracted and want to read them. The more words, the more we're reading. In fact, when I was giving a presentation on slides and I had someone get up to readjust his slides and we had an audience, there was someone in the audience who said, I want to point something out. He said, while you were talking and your slides were up, I kept reading your slides and I couldn't help it. He said, is that what happens when I put my words up? <laughs> I thought, bingo, yes, because we're drawn to reading the words rather than listening to what is being said. The more text, the more you're drawing people away from what you're saying. So pictures, fantastic way of creating a visual and then filling it in with, an, uh, with, with a description. Uh, you know, it's, it's a great point because, as you say, the, the common theme that we've got is how to keep your audience engaged in what you're talking about. And the, the best way to disregard that is to have them read loads of stuff that's on the screen so they're not listening to you and it's like we said earlier by the time they've read it all they'll have missed half of the stuff that you're talking about and they won't understand it so the best way is to have them listen to you because there's also a bit of credibility there if you don't need the slides to look at and you can just speak to it then it puts that credibility. This guy knows what he's talking about. He doesn't need slides to refer to. And it's sort of, as I say, it gives you that extra credibility. So the audience is then even more engaged because they're listening to what you say and they know that you know what you're talking about. So to, to that point, you mentioned earlier about Martin Luther King and that, that, those, that speech. Are there any other speeches you class as like the best of all time? Like, are there any others that really stick in your brain, which maybe the audience should watch or analyze or, or what, what's your favorite ones? Gosh, I have so many. And it's not just American speeches where you can, you can go back to Winston Churchill 
and we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the air, we shall fight in the land and in the sea. Uh, one of the most captivating speeches for a country that drives them forward. And it, what's interesting about it is if you line it up with the I have a dream speech, they use the exact same rhetorical devices. Mm -hmm. So I have a dream is the same as we shall fight on the landing grounds. I have a dream, we shall fight in the air. And I have a dream, we shall fight in the beaches. We shall fight on the land and in the sea. So both of them were doing what was called anaphora. And anaphora is a repetition of a phrase at the beginning of a sentence. So no matter where you see these speeches come up, they're using the same devices, even though delivered a little bit differently because they're, they emotionally draw people in. So that would be the We Shall Fight on the Beaches speech is a terrific one. There's a whole website that I go to. It's called AmericanRhetoric.com. And it doesn't just include American speeches, but it includes many of them. AmericanRhetoric.com, where there are top speeches throughout the history of the world. And for me, when I, I love listening to those because, again, structure is so important. The more I listen to the structure, and the more I realize that it's like a song, is the easier it becomes for me to duplicate that structure when I'm creating a presentation on my own. No, it's, I, I agree. I think there's a, a great way for people to learn how to do better presentations is to listen to the best ones out there, draw inspiration from it, learn from best practice, and then try and tailor it to your um, the, the topic that you need to speak about. Um, so just to, to finish up, if, if you could sum up the tips and advice that we've spoken about today into your top three pieces for delivering great speaking experiences, what would they be? First key is know who you're talking to. Mm -hmm. Before you do anything else, know who you're talking to, understand what they know and how they feel about your topic. That sets you up for success to begin with. Second is what's your goal? What do you want to accomplish? At the end of your presentation, what do you want your audience to walk away and do? And then the third piece of advice is make sure that you use a structure, much like the one that I've talked about, so you can easily fill in and repeat, no matter how many speeches or how long the speech is, repeat that pattern for when you are presenting. Find that the foundation for success, I like to call it. If you can use that method every single time, then you'll be successful. So know who you're talking to, understand what your goal are, and then have that foundation that you use every single time. Great. And, and if the audience wants to find out some more about yourself or is interested in purchase, purchasing your book, where's the best place for them to do so? The best place for the book is on amazon.com. You can find it, Speaking Notes, the eight essential elements to make your speech music to their ears. My social media is all John Watkiss. There's no N in there. Most people make a mistake and they put in the, the N, mm -hmm. which is actually a, it's a Welsh name. I believe one in every 10 million has the name Watkiss as opposed to Watkins. So you can find me on social media or you can find me on my website, johnwatkiss.com. I'm all over the net. 
Nice. So, John, it's been an absolute pleasure having you join me today. Um, it's been an, an amazing episode, which both the audience and myself can take a huge amount from. Um, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. And I look forward to seeing your tips put into action by anyone that's listening. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate the interview. It's been wonderful. So just like that, another series of Let's Shape the Future is complete just want to say a massive thank you for all of your support over the last couple of months the guests the audience everyone it's just been amazing and i can't wait to be back with season three don't worry we won't be gone for long um, season three is in the works so i look forward to bringing you many more great episodes with business leaders inspiring individuals and more chatting about who and what is shaping the future take care guys